This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, September 29th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, remembering Hillary Nelson. Consultants prepare future vision for Telluride. San Miguel Resource Center welcomes new executive director. And a mountain weather forecast. When you think of giants in the world of mountaineering and adventure, one name inevitably rises to the top. Hillary Nelson was the best of her time. We love uh, Hillary for her energy and her motivation, and it was always um, equal to men in, in the mountains and incredibly strong in that sense. That's Conrad Anker, a friend of Nelson and fellow mountaineer. Together, they climbed Denali and Everest and took an expedition to Antarctica. But Anchor notes it wasn't Nelson's ability to climb or ski the most impressive peaks that sticks out. As a professional, she's always an advocate for women. And when she elevated women, she elevated all of us. Nelson passed away on September 26th after getting caught in an avalanche on Mount Mansalu in Nepal. She was 49 years old. Nelson grew up in Seattle, Washington, where she spent her winter skiing Stevens Pass in the Cascades. After graduating from college, she went to Chamonix, France for a winter, which turned into five years, and Nelson began her journey as a world-renowned ski mountaineer. In a career that spanned decades, Nelson became the first descent on dozens of mountains, on more than 40 expeditions in 16 countries. She was the first person to complete a ski descent of Lhotse, the first woman to link Everest and Lhotse in a 24-hour push. She completed a double summit of Denali and was the first person to ski descent Papsura Peak. She was named National Geographic Adventurer of the Year and a North Face athlete, captain of the North Face team. But even with all her accomplishments, speak to those who knew Nelson, and it's her heart that leaves the greatest impact. Anka remembers their expedition on Denali. She was uh, um, with a, a group of younger skiers and snowboarders, and she was great. She was like the, uh, the den mother. She was there making sure that we were fed and that the youngsters were doing their bit and tidying up, and so it was a a cross uh, between a, a wonderful parent and an expedition leader. Suzanne Barraza got to know Nelson through her work with the Mountain Film Festival. She remembers being a little intimidated to start. I've always looked up to Hillary and admired her and thought, you know, she is just the coolest woman ever. And then getting to know her, it was just this other side of her like she wasn't intimidating at all, you know, because all of her accomplishments, I just thought, wow, she's just kind of untouchable woman, but she was so much the opposite. She was caring and giving and generous with her time and just had the most beautiful, easy laugh and just just a hell of a fun person. Barraza adds that while the world knew Nelson as a trailblazer in mountaineering, she was so much more than that. She just was an incredible community member for Telluride Um, incredibly generous with her time, being an amazing mother, an amazing and incredible partner. She was just a warm, loving, kind person. And her being a mountaineer was just, just a small part of who she really was. 
Still, it's hard to understate Nelson's importance on the world of mountaineering, especially for women. Here's Anchor, then Barraza. Hillary's legacy will rest upon empowering women to pursue the mountain dreams. And that whether it's uh, working as a ski guide with a helicopter outfit, as she did with Helitrax, or uh, being the team captain at the North Face, or climbing Everest in, let's say, in a day, her, um, her ability and motivation has touched many people and specifically um, really encouraged women to pursue their dreams and know they had the skills and ability to go do it. She was a complete um, role model for women and showing that you can do have these accomplishments and these um, goals, achieve your goals and still be a mother. And often women are held at a different standard for that than men, where men can go off and do all these things and have children. Women are kind of judged to say, oh, no, you, you can't do that. You're, you're a woman. And she really broke that wide open and just showed that it is important for women to have dreams and to, and to follow those dreams. Nelson is survived by her two children, Graydon and Quinn, and her love, Jim. Maybe back in the summer, you yourself took the survey, which is now setting the course of Telluride's future. From June to August, the Urban Planners Design Workshop were busy gathering perspectives from residents of Telluride in its surrounding communities. They were hired by the town to help with town planning, and a community-wide survey was an important part of their project. Jessica Garrow, a principal with Design Workshop, visited Telluride earlier this month for a planning retreat with community leaders. She explains that Design Workshop is now working to finalize a community vision based on all of those perspectives. So we're taking a lot of inputs, been a lot of community feedback through the different um, methods that, that we've used with the survey. And from that, and really from the retreat, we are refining um, what would be a vision statement, as well as some uh, core values that really embody what does it mean to live, work, and play in the town of Telluride. The planning retreat was attended by various members of town and county government and staff, as well as leaders from local businesses and arts institutions. Meanwhile, the survey had over a thousand responses. Much of what came up in these processes was not especially surprising, Garrow reports. One of the things that was interesting, though not a surprise, um, when we asked folks what's one word that they would use to describe Telluride, beautiful, by far was um, the most uh, written word, and this was an open-ended question, so people were writing this. Other words which expressed more anxiety included threatened and unaffordable. Garrow says negotiating that tension is part of her job. Some words um, that it's changing, and there were some, um, some comments that were pretty consistent um, about what does that change mean and how can the ta- town plan for that. And that's part of what we're hoping to help them do. These challenges faced in Telluride are reflected in other mountain communities where Design Workshop has consulted, Garrow says. This feeling of 
change is something that is consistent in a lot of mountain communities. And a lot of that has to do with the changing demographics of who's in town after COVID. There's um, maybe more more people uh, in town. And I think the, the other piece is the change in um, housing prices and what is affordable or attainable for local community members. Design Workshop plans to present the town of Telluride with a vision statement in the month of October. Ron Quarles, the planning director for the town, says that the vision plan is only a first step. They're trying to formulate an action plan, not only a vision, but an action uh, going forward. Uh, The vision is more of a broad perspective of, of the desires and goals of the community. Guided by those community values, a more specific action plan will lay out policy goals, housing projects, and other areas of focus which will guide the town for the coming decades. Quarles calls this the comprehensive plan. The uh, comprehensive plan will be more of an implementation document. How do we we accomplish these broader goals? And it will be more data-driven than this process. We will have a lot of uh, demographic data transportation data, environmental data, all kinds of things that we haven't really uh, delved into. Garrow says that despite some of the complexity and tension which exist in the survey responses, the level of engagement in Telluride is impressive. Community members should be heartened by the level of care and dedication they have for their community, Garrow says. We, we do a lot of work in other mountain communities, and I would say that Again, kind of the quality of conversation and the caring that the community in Telluride has um, is really second to none. Kind of a survey response rate that is is really high, um, and so it just speaks to a really engaged community that cares about the town and its future. And it's really really wonderful to see. And, and as a consultant, we don't always see that in the communities we work in. Design Workshop will report back to Telluride with the final vision statement in the coming month. Shortly after, the town of Telluride will begin working towards an action plan. The San Miguel Resource Center is under new leadership. Leila Benitez recently became executive director of the nonprofit, aiming to empower and advocate for individuals affected by domestic violence and sexual assault. KOTO News spoke with Benitez about her new role and where she sees the Resource Center moving in the future. You are the new executive director of the San Miguel Resource Center. Um, Folks might know who you are in the community. You are the mayor of Mountain Village. You've been here for for a while. But can you start off by just giving a little bit of your background and, and how you got to this spot in, in the community. You know, I was working in Boulder in clinical studies and just really enjoying it, but wasn't enjoying life. And, the, and I thought, the one place where I'm always happy is Telluride. So after 12 years of coming back and forth every weekend, I made this my full-time home 12 years ago. Started working in the community development department of the town of Mountain Village. It kind of wet my appetite for local government. So I ran for town council, I was appointed mayor two years later, and I've been doing that for the last, oh, five and a half years. And, you know, there's, it's been weighing on me as the time as mayor comes to an end. What am I going to do that's still meaningful to me? And then just by chance, the planet had, a, you know, an article about this opening at SMRC, and it was like, kismet. What drew you to the Resource Center as a place that really felt right for you to land? 
You know, I've been familiar with their work over the years, and I've always been impressed with the magnanimity of what they do with such a small budget and how year after year they meet the needs of hundreds of people, you know, domestic violence survivors, sexual assault survivors. They do it all quietly, gracefully, while supporting our community. Um, it's just, it's so impactful, and it's done, I think, in such a sympathetic and supportive way that really empowers people that are in these situations. You know, we, we do live in a small community, and so we don't, we like to think that we know everybody and, and everybody has good intentions with how they exist in this community, but the reality is domestic violence, sexual assault is, is very real in our small part of the world. Why is the work that the San Miguel Resource Center does, why is that important for us to have as a local resource in our community? Because we are so small and we are so insulated and so far away from major resources, when something happens, you know, our police departments, our medical centers need to be able to refer people to something that's close by. People need a phone number or an office that they can go to without having to go an hour and a half and into a completely different environment. You know, our office is over here on Pine Street. It's a little thing but people know it, they trust it, and they know that the people that are working there are a part of their community. They're not having to go to strangers. You've mentioned the amount of work that the Resource Center is able to do on a relatively small budget. So stepping in as this new executive director, what do you see as maybe some of the challenges that you see stepping into this new role? Um, definitely, we have some challenges right now, uh, mostly with staffing, like everyone else, I think, in our community. I think staffing is just one of our biggest hurdles. It is it is tough work, and it's probably the most rewarding work that anyone's going to do, but we live in a small community, and it's hard to recruit people here. So that's one of our challenges. And second, it comes down to funding. So we apply for federal funds, state funds, um, private, but we need to work a little bit more on our fundraising. We have such a generous community, and um, they've helped us so far, but costs are just going up astronomically. Just hiring people is so expensive. Providing the basic services that victims need is getting more expensive. So I think that's also something that we're going to ramp up in the coming year. And then recognizing that you're working in a hard line of work, but things that you're really excited for being part of the San Miguel Resource Center. Well, I'll tell you, like it's already happened for me just walking into that office. It's just such an amazing, fun, loving group of women that are working there. Of course, welcome men to work there as well. But right now we've got a group of, we've got a staff of seven and just tremendous people with tremendous intelligence and warmth and humanity. And it makes all the difference when you're working with people that you like and respect and I'm just so impressed with the volunteers who year after year give their time to staff the 24-hour hotline. Some of these people have been with us for 10-plus years, some even more. And they're amazing people who give their heart and their time and are there for people, at their for their neighbors, really. For folks who might want or need to get in touch with the Resource Center, what's the best way to get in touch with y'all? Well, we have a 24-hour helpline for all domestic violence and sexual assault survivors. They can call anytime. It's free. The number is 970-728-5660. Layla, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Thank you.
A tiger cat is coming to Wright's Mesa in the open space south of Norwood. But don't expect a wildlife sighting. That's actually the name of an enormous all-terrain machine used for clearing brush and small trees around power lines. San Miguel Power Association is looking ahead to vegetation management projects in the coming year and will be completing work on high transmission power lines outside the town of Norwood. Priorities of the project include clearing brush around towers to provide access for maintenance crews and cutting back high vegetation to reduce wildfire risk. Neely Goodwin of SMPA presented the plan to the Board of County Commissioners. Concerns were raised about the effects of the work on wildlife habitat and carbon sequestration held by the brush which grows on the mesa. Goodwin reports that while the main goal is power line safety, the utility has those secondary concerns in mind. With, with what happened out in California in the Paradise Fire, um, communities getting burned to the ground with um, contact with the conductor with vegetation. All utilities are pretty on board with making sure their um, power lines are secure from these things. So, um, you know, when it comes to carbon and stuff with this oak brush, remember that we're going to be leaving anything, everything we can. Hot weather, which increases wildfire conditions, can also make power lines sag. Goodwin says that while there is currently space between the lines and the vegetation, the project will increase that buffer. And right now the oak brush is anywhere from to 20 to 28 feet away. And we're really not including the sag in that. So if we have any kind of an event where that line sags really low in the belly of the sag, we're going to have problems. So the project is scheduled for next summer and fall. Big ideas, intimate venues, and an ethic of participation and open discourse come together for one of the final events in Telluride's festival season. This weekend, Original Thinkers takes over the Sheridan Opera House with six documentary films and moderated discussions with filmmakers. Among the featured films are Bell River, which follows the resilience of a rural Louisiana community facing rising floodwaters, and The Janes, which chronicles the work of abortion activists some 50 years ago and listens to their guidance for today. Other weekend events include opportunities to take tea or get a drink with festival guests, live music performances, a multimedia opera installation, and the requisite festival yoga. For the complete schedule and a slate of past offerings, visit OriginalThinkers.com. Hoping to unburden yourself of an ancient computer monitor or a handful of old wire? EcoAction Partners is popping up next week at three county locations to collect old electronics. On October 7th, they will be at the Carhenge parking lot in Telluride and the Gondola parking garage in Mountain Village to provide a pickup for electronic recycling. The following day, October 8th, they will be in Norwood at the county fairgrounds and again at Carhenge. Many batteries and electronics contain rare and toxic materials which are dangerous in landfills but can be effectively reused. The pop-ups run from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. each day. For a complete list of electronics and associated recycling costs, visit ecoactionpartners.org. Governor Jared Polis faced his Republican challenger Heidi Ganahl Wednesday evening in the first debate in Colorado's gubernatorial race. 
The two debated for about an hour at Colorado State University, Pueblo. Ganahl, a University of Colorado regent, began by criticizing Polis for being soft on crime, including his signing of a law that made possession of small amounts of some drugs, including fentanyl, a misdemeanor rather than a felony. In the last four years, Colorado has become one of the most dangerous states in the country to work, live, and raise a family. The governor's soft on crime bills have made it dangerous to live here. When you vote, Hold him accountable. Polis defended his record, emphasizing recent legislation that increased police spending. We delivered over $150 million to fund public safety. Working with Republicans and Democrats in the legislature, we didn't just talk about it, we got it done. What did that mean? Money to local law enforcement across the state of Colorado. Regarding the economy, Ganahl reiterated a campaign promise to eliminate the state income tax. I am going to take Colorado to zero income tax. He talked about it. I'm going to do it. Polis hit back, criticizing Ganahl's tax proposal and emphasizing the different policies that save Coloradans money. Free preschool and kindergarten, saving people money on health care, reducing fees across so many different categories. In response to Ganahl's accusations of him going, quote, too far, too fast, in plans to reduce the state's carbon emissions, Polis initiated a back and forth about the candidate's choice of vehicles. Well, I thought you drive a Tesla, don't you? I have... Our family has no. three cars, so yeah. I drive and I, an I, uh, combustion engine, and I'm proud to. I also have a Chevy Express uh, conversion look, van with 120,000 miles can, on it. Not everybody can afford a, a Tesla like my opponent. Well, you can. Um, yeah, but I drive an <laughs> internal combustion engine. I think that's all you need to know well, about Why don't you walk here, right? the talk look, then, Jared? Two more gubernatorial debates are scheduled in October. In the beginning stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, public health professionals across the Western Slope were faced with big, unprecedented challenges as they worked to find solutions while the science was still new and information could change by the day. In December of 2020, however, there was a game changer, the COVID-19 vaccines. Now these communities, often rural in nature, had access to a pharmaceutical tool to help fight the virus. But there were challenges to getting those vaccines to the folks who needed them, and that shows in different counties' death rates. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Carolyn Giannis has more in part two of Aspen Public Radio's series in collaboration with Aspen Journalism. The impacts of the pandemic have varied widely across the Western Slope, especially between mountain communities and Western counties. Delta County has reported about 6,700 cases and over 140 COVID deaths since 2020, according to the Colorado Department of Health and Environment. Its death rate is 10 times higher than Pitkin County and double the state average. But Delta County had one of the lowest case rates in the region. It's nearly two times lower than Pitkin. Mountain communities, which still saw lots of tourists even during the pandemic, have some of the highest case rates in the state, but they counted very few deaths, some of the fewest in Colorado. While death rates for Eagle, Pitkin, and Gunnison counties steadily increased without large spikes over the past two years, Mesa and Delta counties have seen their death rates jump. From early November of 2020 to early February 2021, Delta County's death rate multiplied by nearly 20. That's 56 deaths in that time period. Pat Sullivan, the nurse manager for Delta County Public Health, recalls these early deaths. 
So we definitely saw fatalities in the long-term care facilities. And that was before vaccines were available. And so, you know, you look at risk factors, the very old, and of course, those individuals had some chronic medical conditions. And there were individuals who got exposed and didn't realize they were being exposed and they had underlying health conditions. About a year later, during the Delta variant wave and after vaccines became available, the county's death rate still increased by about 40% in the fall. This means that over 30 people passed away with COVID between mid-October and mid-December 2021. Sullivan thinks low vaccination rates may have contributed to Delta County's high death toll. There were some individuals who unfortunately suffered because they just didn't think it was going to be as bad as it was. Yeah, because I can think of a few individuals um, and who ended up suffering because of that. And, uh, and if they were um, a leader in the community, you know, other individuals followed their lead and may have suffered as well. Mesa County followed the same pattern, but over a longer period of time, with more deaths occurring later in December. From mid-October to mid-January, the county's death rate rose by nearly 50 percent, which represented 170 new deaths. Meanwhile, Pitkin County reported only two new deaths, and Eagle County's rate remained stable. Dr. Kim Levin, who serves on the Pitkin County Board of Health, explains that multiple variables likely contributed to this low death rate. I think we have a healthy community in a lot of ways. So we started with a healthier community than other communities. Vaccines, all of the masking efforts, the social distancing efforts, all of the tools that were put into place effectively and how we can put them in place in a local level work towards that end. Nearly 90% of the population aged five and older is fully vaccinated in Pitkin County, and 85% of the five-plus population in Eagle County. It's a very different picture in Delta and Mesa counties, where about 50 to 55% of the population aged five and up is fully immunized. Pat Sullivan remembers the first vaccine clinics in Delta County. What was interesting is these were people who, for the most part, had been isolating at home because they thought they would die if they got this. This was not a joking matter to them. And some of them cried when they got it. It was very emotional. People in wheelchairs, the very elderly who were at home, husbands and wives, children bringing in their parents. Many counties took an approach to vaccine distribution that involved big public information and education campaigns, actively putting materials and personnel into their communities to spread information and awareness about the vaccines. Delta County's approach was very different, something Sullivan says was an attempt to embrace local culture. It would probably be no surprise to consider the West Slope individuals as independent thinkers. So our approach has just kind of naturally fallen to is, here's what we're offering for you today. Can I make any promises? I can't promise anything, but I can tell you, you will be less likely to be hospitalized if you're vaccinated. You will be less likely to die, especially if you have some of these underlying risk factors. 
Sullivan says there was even a physician in Delta County that prescribed ivermectin, a medication most commonly used as a horse dewormer, as an alternative to the COVID vaccine. The medication has not proven to be an effective COVID treatment, though it gained popularity after right-wing political figures spread false claims of its effectiveness. Combating inaccurate information about COVID and the vaccine was a challenge for public health departments looking to get as many folks vaccinated as possible. But despite these challenges, Sullivan says health department staff wanted to honor that independent thinking spirit of their community. And I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm just trying to help them. Eagle County undertook a much more aggressive campaign than Delta County did, looking to meet people where they were at. Those efforts included live question and answer sessions on social media, public information campaigns, and making the vaccine as easy to access as possible, putting clinics not just at healthcare centers, but around the community. A huge challenge for many counties was making sure more vulnerable populations were able to access the vaccine, and that folks who didn't speak English were able to get accurate and understandable information about the vaccine. While most of the white population in Eagle County got at least one dose of the vaccine, about 40% of the county's Latino population did. Heath Harmon from Eagle County Public Health explains this disparity. If I'm being really honest, um, I I don't know that it always reached all of our community members um, with the level of intention that we had hoped. Gunnison County has one of the smallest vaccine disparities in the region. About three-quarters of the white population and about half of the Latino population received at least one dose of the vaccine. Gunnison County was able to take advantage of existing relationships within the community, something Joni Reynolds, the director of public health, says helped them be more equitable in their distribution of the vaccine. We did a lot of outreach at non-traditional settings, so we didn't just wait for folks to come in to our clinic settings. We did some clinics at recreation centers, at meetings that um, immigrant community holds on a monthly basis. We did vaccinations at churches. We did vaccinations in the spring at soccer games. My guidance really for my team and challenge was I'd like people to trip over the vaccinations. That aggressive vaccination campaign paid off. Gunnison County has reported about 3,700 cases and 15 COVID deaths since 2020. It's one of the lowest case and death rates in the region. Caroline Yanez, Aspen Public Radio News. Lorene LaSalle from Aspen Journalism also reported on this story. The music in this story is from Blue Dot Sessions. This is the second in a two-part series looking at the impacts of COVID-19 on public health departments across the Western Slope. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a chance of showers and thunderstorms. The low is around 45 degrees. Friday, there's a 40% chance of showers and thunderstorms with a high near 60 degrees. Friday night should be mostly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers and thunderstorms and a low around 40 degrees. Saturday, expect showers and thunderstorms with partly sunny skies during the day and mostly clear skies at night. The high is near 60 degrees with a low around 40. This has been the news for Thursday, September 29th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.